It's April 17, 2013, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marsh Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we will be your geeks in residence for the next hour. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today, we've got three news guests. First is uh, Bill Chismar from UH Manoa Outreach College and a program called Science in Action. Uh, then we have Monique Chiba, who's going to tell us about uh, the upcoming Monte Carlo night. Finally, we'll hear about ruggedized sensors monitoring the Alawai and what the technology can tell us about our waterways. We'd love your questions and thoughts as part of the conversation, so be ready to call in or tweet. But first, the headlines. Well, Hawaii will host its first space launch in October this year when the space-borne payload assist rocket Kauai, or SPARK, will deliver a microsatellite and other secondary payloads into low-Earth orbit. The University of Hawaii has played a key part in the development of the low-cost expendable launch system, which it is developing along with the California-based aerospace manufacturer Aerojet and New Mexico-based defense contractor Sandia Labs. The three-stage all-solid carrier rocket is based on the Stripey rocket, which was developed in the 1960s and is thus also known as the Super Stripey. Its development is funded by the U.S. Department of Defense, and the launch will take place at the Pacific Missile Range Facility at Barking Sands on Kauai. Development of the rocket and its 110-pound Hiakasat satellite that it will carry into space is taking place at the Hawaii Space Flight Lab, which was established in 2007 within the University of Hawaii's School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology. Well, Hiakasite stands for Hyperspectral Imaging Aeronautical Kinematic Analysis, but Hiaka also means to recite legends or famous stories in the Hawaiian Hawaiian language. Its mission is to demonstrate remote sensing from low Earth orbit based on a thermal imager developed at UH. Uh, UH President Marcy Greenwood said in a statement, Hawaii is located in a unique position to become a low-cost gateway to space, UH is one of the only universities in the world to have both satellite fabrication capabilities and unique direct access to low-Earth orbit. Now, you know, it's kind of interesting because this low-Earth orbit is like, uh, it's like below uh, 2,000 kilometers. And I think these um, satellites will be somewhere around the 500 to 600 yeah, 400, kilometers. 400 kilometers. And then, um, you know, this orbit is like a, a sun-synchronous orbit. So I'm trying to figure out what sun-synchronous is. And it actually, it, usually, you know, you think about the orbit around the equator. But this is going to go from polar to, you know, polar to polar. Right. And we've done, we've, we've spoken uh, to several developers of microsats and, and nanosatellites. And that's basically what this rocket is designed to do, and uh, there's basically been studies saying that the micro and nano satellite market is going up, is, is growing like gangbusters, and certainly for Hawaii to have a space launch facility for that couldn't hurt. Oh, yeah, this is exciting stuff. We're definitely going to cover more of this uh, story. Uh, next was uh, big news last week. The Board of Land and Natural Resources on Friday cleared one of the final major hurdles for the 30-meter telescope project, which is an ambitious international effort to build the world's largest telescope atop Mauna Kea on the Big Island. Last week's approval, which comes with two dozen conditions aimed at mitigating concerns over its impact on the environment as well as historic cultural sites, comes after more than a decade of planning, legal wrangling, and fundraising to cover construction costs that are expected to top $1 million. One billion dollars. One billion dollars. Sorry, yeah, one million. Would well, be the deal. decision allows the project to negotiate with the University of Hawaii for a sublease for land at the summit. In addition, the land board still has to review and approve the final construction plan. But TMT officials say that they expect to begin preparing the site before the end of the year, and to to start construction next April. 
The land board and, and grant, um, had granted its initial approval in February 2011, but held back the official green light until a contested case had been resolved. The contested case was uh, put to, the, to rest in February, clearing the way for the TMT long-awaited conservation district use permit. The summit of Mauna Kea is considered a sacred site by Native Hawaiians and is also home to endangered native species, including the Wekiu bug, which is not formally designated an endangered species, but is nonetheless rare and uniquely adapted to life at the summit. TMT Board Chair Henry Yang said in a statement, The board expresses our strong commitment to respect the long history and cultural significance of Mauna Kea to the Hawaiian people, and we've committed annual funding for local community benefits and education in Hawaii. Now, you know, we, um, I know I did, and I, I know you went to the open house over at the Institute for Astronomy, mm-hmm. and this was like big news. Everybody was talking about the 30-meter telescope. Absolutely. A $1 billion project, for sure, and uh, actually a lot of stakeholders. Not In fact, the United States is one of the last groups coming on board as stakeholders, but uh, mm-hmm. apart from the California institutions that are involved in it. But there are also a lot of people noting that with this expected to go live, you know, first light in, in 2021, right now the first light date for another telescope coming up is 2022, and that one is 42 meters. So we will have the record for the largest ground-based telescope for a little while, and that's depending if both of them are on target in terms of construction. I know, and those Europeans, they're calling calling their telescope the extremely large telescope just so that they can claim that they're the extremely right. large. and next will be the super-duper extremely large. Yeah, and we'll cover that. I hope it's in Hawaii. <laughs> Finally, a couple of quick stories I wanted to share with you. The latest startup weekend Honolulu took place this past weekend at the Box Jelly. After 54 frantic hours of pitching, building, and marketing, judges gave third place to the I Hear app designed to make events and everyday life more accessible to the hearing impaired. Second place went to Internia, a site to connect startup companies with interns, and top honors went to Rapidly, a an eco-friendly gift wrap solution. A global survey of banks and social media has ranked Bank of Hawaii as the 29th most social bank in the United States and in the top 100 in the world. The retail banking social media Power 100 rankings were compiled by the financial brand and social media explorer. Bank of Hawaii got its score from its 12,000 Facebook fans, 3,200 Twitter followers, and 5,800 YouTube views. And on the calendar this Sunday uh, brings the 6th annual Hawaii Geek Meet. It's, It's literally a grass Roots Tech event taking place in the great outdoors at Magic Island. Everyone from astronomers to ham radio enthusiasts to storm troopers and medieval sword fighters will be on hand to share their skills and tell their stories. Bring your family and friends, your favorite gadgets and toys, and a healthy serving of curiosity. This is going to take place on Sunday, April 21st at Magic Island. And for more information, you can visit hawaiigeek.com. Please come down. And it's free. It is. And now joining us in the studio is Bill Chismar from the Outreach College, and he's, he's here to tell us about something called Science in Action. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks, Bert. It's great to be here. Now, uh, this uh, Science in Action program is something that's really uh, you know, geared for the high schoolers, right? I mean, and, and this is kind of during the summertime, so tell us a bit, of, a bit about what the program entails. Yeah, this is uh, part of our pre-college program for high school students, mm-hmm. and what we wanted to do was to provide high school kids with an opportunity to really see what science is all about. So what what are some of the examples of uh, the different kinds of programs that you might be offering? So we have five courses. They're either a half day for two weeks or all day for one week. Mm -hmm. And we have a course in wetland botany, 
where the students will go out and gather organisms from the field and bring them back into the lab to mm -hmm. discover what they are. We have a course in marine biology where the students spend a week over on Coconut Island, um, a week-long course in medical diagnosis where the students get down into the John A. Burns School of Medicine and put their white coats on and oh, uh, good. Yeah. do diagnosis. Uh, we have a course in uh, micro, marine microbiology mm -hmm. uh, with the Seymour, so students find out all the little organisms that are growing in the ocean, uh, and then mathematics course. Great. Uh, now, is this an event that, I mean, you know, a lot of parents are always looking for activities for their kids over the summer, but this is a this seems a little more intensive than your typical summer fun program. I mean, is this something that is seen as as preparing them for college, preparing them for jobs? I mean, what's what's sort of one of the, the, the takeaways that a student might have in participating? Well, our goal here is really to give students the sense of the joy of scientific discovery. So it's non-credit, so there's no exams to worry about. Um, and they, it's all hands-on. They're out in the field or they're in the lab. And we also want them to do personal discovery so they can find their passion for science and also so that they could see that they can actually do this. Mm -hmm. So we're hoping, for instance, in the medical diagnosis, students will spend a week doing what medical students do and find out at the end of the week, hey, I could probably do this. So this is being um, coordinated by outreach, and then the the people that actually conduct the uh, the week long, uh, let's say, session are professors or grad students. Who's who's actually conducting this? Right, outreach college organizes it and runs it. Mm -hmm. The faculty are UH faculty or graduate students, PhD students in natural sciences at uh, Seymour or at the medical school mm -hmm. uh, or at SOAST. Now, how big are the groups? I mean, is, I mean, uh, how many people would be in one of these specific, say, the the the, the field botany one, exploring the wetlands? Um, is it uh, a, a small cohort of, of of high school students or a larger group? What 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 kind of environment are they going to be in? This is the first year for this program, so we wanted to keep things small. Mm -hmm. So all of the courses are limited to twenty students, except for the medical school. The medical school is geared up. They've done these sorts of things before, so they'll take up to 50 students. And so a student would pick one of these tracks, or they go through all of them? They can pick one. They can pick two. They can pick hmm. all of them. And we have a variety. We've had students already registering. Some of them signed up for all five. Some of them signed up for one. Are you, are you selecting them? Is there criteria to get entry into any of these workshops? Now, again, what we wanted to do here was to really let students discover their mm -hmm. interest in it. So... Again, it's non-credit, and there's no entrance requirement other than they have to be high school age and interested in doing this. Now, you mentioned the medical school, and they do uh, some outreach, and they just had their grand opening, and the community got to visit. And you mentioned being in the wetlands. I mean, what are some of the facilities or natural environments that these students will get to spend time? The wetlands botany will spend a lot of time up in the Manoa Valley. Mm -hmm. um, the Marine sciences over, as I mentioned, on Coconut Island. Right. Oh, okay. The microbial oceanography will be down uh, at the aquarium gathering um, samples from the ocean down there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, in, in terms of, uh, so if there's no, like, entry requirement, then it's kind of like first come, first serve then. Yes, exactly. Our initial deadline was last Friday for signing up. 
Um, the Did only you renew the deadline since you're on the show? <laughs> <laughs> well, we got rid of the deadline. Okay. Um, only one of the courses is filled at this point, which is the marine science course. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All of the other courses have some space left. So we've opened it up and, you know, on first come, first serve, we'll leave them open until oh, good, they're filled. Good. So where can somebody go to sign up and find more information? They can go to our website, which is summer.hawaii.edu, and check under the Science in Action. Si- summer.hawaii.edu. That's pretty straightforward. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sounds good. And, of course, we've well, got— first, thanks, Bill, well, for thanks, coming Bill. on we'll, the show. We'll, we'll say goodbye to you a little later on. Just <laughs> stick around. Um, right. But we have a couple of other guests here in the studio. We have uh, Michael Andonian and Monique Chiba, and they're both here from the uh, math department over at UH. And they've got something coming up called Monte Carlo Night. So we want to welcome you both, uh, Mike and Monique. Good afternoon. Thank you for having us here. Yeah, great. So now this is a, a, a math program, and, and this is sort of coming up. Uh, actually, Monte Carlo Night is coming up pretty quick, right? Tell it is on, on Wednesday next week. It, it is happening at the uh, campus, at the UH campus in the ballroom from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Mm-hmm. And what exactly takes place at Monte Carlo? Do I need to bring money or what's the, what's the deal there? <laughs> no, certainly not. Oh, okay. So uh, the event is designed for uh, especially middle and high schoolers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is well known now that in seventh grade, a bifurcation happens in the perception of the students about mathematics. And uh, there is a shift and, and the, uh, the enthusiasm and the curiosity fits out unless we are capable to tie in into their new life and their, uh, uh, their teenager, you know, uh, so they are changing. And, and they carry that perception, and, and, and it's then uh, and it impairs them throughout their educational journey, unless mm. uh, we are capable to offer them something, um, especially for them as teenagers. So that really motivated the event we designed. So if I can be a little more precise, mm-hmm. uh, it is around probability. Right, probability governs a lot of the processes that takes place in the real world, mm-hmm. not necessarily uh, things that are human made, just in the nature. And uh, so we thought about how can we serve that population, the middle and high schooler, make them make them feel really special, you know, and that we care about them, and create an environment that is going to be fun, that is going to be exciting, and and where they're going to feel really special. So we decided to uh, to take that uh, Monte Carlo idea. So they are going to go and learn about the games, but ha- rather than gambling, they're going to uh, be. Um, uh, driven into understanding what is really happening. How can you uh, win? Why did you lose? Uh, What would you change? What move uh, would you do differently? Uh, When did you know that you're going to win? All those questions. And really, we want to expose them to the mathematical sophistication Mm -hmm. underlying that word. Okay, so as an example, um, maybe you can give me an example of how uh, you would put them through a game. Now, it's not like, um, you know, deal out a deck of cards and, you know, play blackjack and add it up to 21. That's not That's not how... They are, they oh, are actually oh, going to play those games, oh. but uh, they're going to be guided to understanding what is really behind those mm-hmm, games. Mm-hmm. We'll have the roulette, we'll have the craps, we'll have... And, and, and we are... I we, think I might go to this. Yeah, please. <laughs> I might uh, learn something. And, and we are partnering with uh, um, an organization here in Hawaii that is uh, called Just Like Vegas to make really 
the environment look like a casino because we want to appeal to those young kids, you know, to get the excitement. So for the people that are going to run the activity, we have a dress code, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. to really feel wow. like, oh, I'm there. Uh, of course, uh, no alcohol, no gambling, no money will be present, but we'll have <laughs> the chips and everything is going to be there and mm-hmm, real. Mm-hmm. So hopefully the students will get dressed up and as well. But I can I That can, would be wonderful. <laughs> so best case scenario, you're helping them to rediscover math. The worst case scenario, you're helping them being more, con- you know, help them contribute to family trips to Las Vegas in the future. <laughs> so, so, so if anything, they might come out of this knowing how to better play blackjack or better play poker or, or have some at least understanding of how the 52 cards kind of lay out. and Absolutely. They're, they're going to understand that the mathematics mm-hmm. are control uh, those games and that uh, mathematics is really a very powerful tool uh, that guides, uh, that is a gift and that guides the nature mm-hmm. and how things work. That's really the message that we want to uh, present so, them. So if a student were to come and, and go through this, would they go right. through multiple exercises? And then so if they if they say master one, they can go on to the next one? Or how do you... Uh, let's say, sequence them through the the program. They're going to be free to go from one table to another one. Mm -hmm. uh, And then they're going to choose the games that they love the best. And and they're going to uh, decide what they're going to handle. We're expecting that the middle and high schooler are going to come with a desire to beat the one that are running the games, which is very exciting. That's how you learn, right? That's how uh, you get better. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be exciting. Are there are there going to be any kind of uh, contests or prizes or competition? As uh, the the prize is really going to be about uh, what you learn okay. and and what about uh, about what you are exposed to about the science. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you said this is your first time doing this, and as part of is Super M the 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 series of events. Is this just the first one? Uh, Super M is a uh, is a program that we have developed in the Department of Mathematics mm-hmm. here at UH Manoa. It's sponsored by the National Science Foundation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been existing for four years, and we're bridging the higher education with the K-12 system. And we do run a lot of events. However, um, we wanted to do something for middle and high schooler. We ju- usually have a lot of the younger kids that are excited by doing activities, but it's harder to reach them. So we really... Uh, try to think about how we can make it appealing to the teenagers. Okay. So well, where can someone go to find information well, about and let's this give, Let's give Mike a little chance to say a few words since you've been so quiet over yeah, there. Yeah, give us the website Come on, address. Mike. Uh, you can find more information at supermm.math.hawaii.edu and just click on the events link at the top. All right, Very so we've good. got uh, two events here of interest to high schoolers, to younger students, uh, supermm.math.hawaii.edu or the science in action at summer.hawaii.edu. Terrific. So thanks, Bill and Mike and Monique, for joining Thank us. Thank you so much. I hope we'll see you next Wednesday. Yeah, I might like learn fun. something, yeah. <laughs> thanks, Bert. Thanks, And uh, that's Ryan. what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Ken Kaneshiro and Mr. K to talk about the Center for Island Maritime and Extreme Environment Security, or SIMES. How are our shorelines being monitored? We'd, of course, love your questions as part of that conversation, so please give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, you can also tweet us your questions. I'm at Bite Marks or at Hawaii, and this is Bite Marks Cafe. The often-touted unfriendly climate towards small business now has more evidence. Hawaii's tax system is ranked 49th worst in the nation. 
We'll talk with Grassroot Institute Executive Director Kaylee Akina about policy and the private sector pocketbook tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Robert Fuller, author of Religion and Science, A Beautiful Friendship. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about what's right and true in these two traditions. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back to Bite Marsh Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And, of course, joining us today is Ken Kaneshiro and Jack Kay. And, I, you know, I'm not going to call him Jack Kay because I'm used to calling him Mr. Kay because he's my biology teacher from high school. Wow. <laughs> anyway, Ken is the director for the Center for Conservation Research and Training and the project lead for SIMES. And uh, Mr. Kay, if you will, is an instructor at Iolani School and has his class involved with monitoring the health of the Alawai Canal. Of course, what is the relationship between environmental monitoring and security? And, of course, we'd love to hear your questions and comments. And that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Jack and Ken, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Aloha. Aloha. Thank you for inviting us. Well, you know, I'll start with a, a general sort of overview of what SIMES is, and I'll start with Ken, and you can tell us, you know, what is exactly, um, what does the acronym mean, and, and, you know, what does it really mean in, from a broader picture for, you know, some of these sensors being placed out there? Yeah, SIMES stands for the Center for Island, Maritime, and Extreme Environment Security, and mm-hmm. it's funded by the Department of Homeland Security. Hmm. And the idea is to um, put out sensors into the environment, you know, the marine environment, the, even the terrestrial environment, to begin to collect environmental data that um, the, the various agencies and homeland security can use for disaster management, flood mitigation, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, how many years has this program kind of been around? I think, I think they're in their last year of a five-year um, uh, funded program, mm-hmm. and so they're getting ready to apply for another continued, another five year of funding from Homeland Security. Now we're we're, we're listening to um, uh, Mr. K ruffle through some of his papers. Uh, he must be looking for some notes. But uh, how did Iolani get involved with this this project? Well, I, it goes back a long time. I've been with Iolani for a while, and I've always been uh, driven by the way youngsters develop ideas, ask the questions, and I'm afraid in the last maybe 10, 15 years that actually a lot of our kids are not asking the questions anymore. They're accepting things. So we wanted to get them back involved with actual actual research. Uh, so we be, I had a, a fellowship in my wife's name, and I gave a couple of youngsters that. And the work they did in the LOI was outstanding. From there, we then started uh, to get connected with Ken and, of course, the university. Uh, and then we have a young man from his services, Corey App, who gives us a lot of help with our kids. Um, I was a marine biologist, but that was in 1901, I think, so it's been <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah, well, you know, Bert was only a teenager then. In 1901, <laughs> yeah, I, I remember those days. <laughs> but um, uh, th- these kids got so excited, we said it has to become part of the AP program. And so mm. uh, the other la- the lady that I teach it with is uh, uh, Teresa Shimamoto. Mm-hmm. 
and she loved the idea. And so for a little over three years now, I think this is the fourth year, uh, we've been collecting data all the way up and down the stream from um, really from about uh, Kaiser, not Kaiser, excuse me, but um, oh, what is it? I'm getting old and senile. <laughs> Uh, but that that strip from the, uh, down to uh, Date Street, mm-hmm. uh, down to the canal itself, that, that tributary, and then the canal. And we d- developed eight different stations, and we're trying to gather everything we can about that um, and the different times of day, different times, all of the things that are uh, key to trying to understand what drives organisms there, what, why are they there, what does this do for them, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And we just turned them loose. We put 10% of their AP grade became their, their paper. Hmm. Their paper has to be written as though it was for publication. Uh, so we want high-level quality work. Uh, and we then started picking up all kind of goodies. Dr. Kaneshiro and his group, so to speak, and IntelliSense. Uh, we've been able to get different kind of uh, sensors, uh, the YSI, which we can uh, sense 12 different things at one time. And we have that data now for four years. We also have a weather station with the weather station correlating that data uh, and being able to pull these things up at our leisure or in whatever connection you want. Uh, The kids are finding out some interesting things, you Mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. Uh, and and that's what it's all about because one question leads to the next question, which leads to the next question. And so you have a plethora of questions, and we're hoping that we might even be able to answer some of those over time. We're talking to Jack Kay from Iolani School and Ken Kaneshiro from the Center for Conservation Research and Training, or uh, SIMES, about uh, waterway monitoring, both for security as well as for science and its applications in education. If you've got a question about, and I'm certain you may be curious about the Alawai, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Jack, I have two questions for you. The first is, was Bert a good student? And second, when you say students are writing papers, what would be some of the most memorable ones in your mind in terms of discoveries or connections that the students made? Well, I'm, I'm actually a macrobiologist more than a microbiologist, uh, so I, I'm a fish man. My work was done on Hinalea rasa, so not too important of a species. <laughs> uh, but to see youngsters come up with the idea of why we might find this organism in point A under certain conditions uh, when would be the breeding season, when is not mm. the breeding season, and b- being able to put meaning to that. Uh, you just don't go out and say, well, September 13th to September 25th, you, you know, the Mempachi are going to be breeding or something. But what we want to do is to find out the reasons for what's going on, the reasons that drive their behavior, or at least is associated with their behavior. Uh, f- and as I say, from that, I had a young lady uh, a year ago, Iris Cool who actually ended up finding a brand new species of uh, bacteria. But that, uh, wasn't, that wasn't part of the, the SIMES project. That was a different project. That, actually, that was through the university, but mm-hmm. she got her start with us. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the university, Dr. Kaneshiro's people, I call them their people because he has <laughs> a lot of people up there, uh, they got a hold of her, provided the next step. Uh, but I, I feel pretty good about getting her started. So that's what I No, I... Uh, and Ken and, and, and Bert got straight A's, of course. No, no well, let's not get into that. And, right. and, and Mr. K did a good job of, of evading that question completely. I thought so. So that was well. good. That was good. <laughs> so, Ken, um, you know, when you, uh, when you talk about some of these sensors, like IntelliSense, uh, and, and we've, we've heard about that before, but um, tell us a little bit about IntelliSense and what exactly is and What company is that? Yeah, IntelliSense Technology is um, 
a company that's been incorporated in Hawaii as a result of some of the research that we've done mm-hmm. together with uh, two Stanford NASA engineers. And um, see, so they're connected with NASA because their main responsibility was to put sensors on the astronauts and transmit vital, you know, vital data, heartbeat, you know, mm-hmm. blood temperature, pressure, yeah. temperature, that sort of thing from space. So we asked them, you know, we, we want to do the same sort of thing uh, to measure ecosystem health mm-hmm. from some of the most remote, some of the most rugged uh, areas in, in the Hawaiian Islands. You know, it, most of these places would take us four days to hike in just to get to the site that we're interested in or fly in with a very ex- expensive helicopter flight. Mm-hmm. So, and you can't be doing that, you know, every month or so to collect these data. So they said, well, yeah, we can do that. But they didn't realize that we're talking about very deep valleys, rain cover, you know, cloud covered and heavy rainfall. And we put them in the very most difficult test bed site, which is on the north shore of Kauai, Uh you know, Uh near Mount Mm Waialiali, supposedly the wettest spot on earth. And we worked for for a couple of years, you know, testing and trying out these various um, technologies that they had developed. And now, you know, this, this was back in 19, uh, 2005 or so that we really started to work hard together. And so we're talking about seven years later where we've really got a very robust system now. And I, I showed you the article that came out in the San Francisco Chronicle talking about, uh, just today, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, talking about the, uh, the, the uh, advanced sensor platform that IntelliSense Technology has developed. And it, it really is one of the state-of-the-art. So, so these uh, sensors that are out in the Alawai, are they, what are they powered by? Are they battery-powered? And you know, when, when they have to endure that sort of outside environmental condition, uh, how is it that they're perhaps ruggedized so that they can, you know, they can stay out there and operate. And I'm not sure how long they can operate, but maybe you can tell us about that. Right. So they do have batteries in it. And and that was one of the big issues initially is, you know, again, you can't really hike up into these deep valleys for, you know, every every so many days Mm -hmm. to check on the battery and so on. And we did have difficulty with the battery, you know, under those uh, environmental conditions that we see in the Hawaiian Islands. It didn't really last too long. So they over several iterations, changed different battery types and tested different battery types together with putting out um, solar panels to to begin to recharge the batteries and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. as I said, now we've got it pretty well ruggedized so that together with some special lithium-ion batteries, you know, again, I'm not the technology person, but <laughs> together with uh, solar panels, we're able to you know, put these sensors out there for months at a time and not have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the data that we're getting in at on our desktop, you know, so from Kauai all the way to our desktop here in Manoa at the University of Hawaii will tell us whether there's something wrong with the, the sensor, the battery. We have, you know, indicators that tell us that the battery is going down or something's wrong with it. And then we have to send somebody up there, of course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, after about seven or eight years of working together and tweaking, you know, the the, uh, the sensor technology, I think we've got a very robust system now. Now, um, speaking of sort of hostile or you know unique environments where you might need ruggedized equipment, certainly the North Shore of Kauai, I can see. Uh, we come to Alawai, the Alawai Canal. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine for Iolani, <laughs> it kind of makes sense in terms of proximity. But, uh, well, I'll start with Ken, uh, and, and we can move on to uh, Jack. But why the Alawai Canal? And what, you know, are the characteristics that make it such an interesting focus of study? 
Yeah, uh, you know the Alawite Canal is is interesting because it's it's the most polluted land <laughs> uh, water body in in the in the state. Uh, isn't it notorious for uh, flesh eating bacteria? Yeah, yep. they, they did have that case, and um, you know, um, <laughs> but you know that was because of ma- major sewage spill and that sort of thing. But that just tells you that uh, the Alawite Canal is really a dumping ground for mm-hmm. a lot of pollutants that mm-hmm, come. Mm-hmm. Through the stream ecosystem, and so it's very important for us to be able to monitor almost in real time where these pollutants are are coming from. Mm-hmm. So, so um, Jack, when you had the uh, opportunity to put the sensors into you know the Alawai, were you were you the one that was involved with let's say building the you know the structure that housed the the uh, sensor? Well, you know it's a little bit different now. Uh, in in the wild, you can leave things out. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to leave things out along a canal on the Alawai. Somebody will come along and oh, yeah. pick it up. Right, right. Good point. So we do do have a serious problem there. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we use a, a YSI, it was one piece of equipment, which gives us 12 different readings. But we do that by taking our boat out, uh, a little boat, and sampling whatever periods or times you want. But the goal is to move beyond that. Uh, we want to have immediate censoring wherever we want. And although other people have worked on this, and we've met some of them, one of the projects our students will be doing next year, we have a new building, top floor is all science, dedicated to inquiry. But we're asking kids, uh, one of the projects is that I want a vehicle that can carry six to eight sensors. It will be controlled from the shore. Uh, you can drive it from the shore. You can call up the sensor you want in real time. You can then uh, have that information fed back to my computer instantly, and it can go into my bank right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to build that vehicle is a challenge, and I have kids uh, almost you know, just salivating trying to get into that because there's all of the engineering you have to go through, all the technology you have to go through, developing all of those sensors, writing the code for all of that. And our kids can do that. And, uh, and not are, only want to do that, they're excited to do that. Are they, are they doing it with uh, some background in that area, or are they coming in kind of from scratch? Well, this it, well no, they've, a lot of these kids are in robotics. Okay. Uh, you know, so the robotics is a big program here at Iolani. Uh, we have a lot of advanced courses in chemistry and physics and things of that nature. But these youngsters are, are taking the challenge. I, I met, remember one young man, uh, he came to class very, very tired. I uh, asked him what was going on. He said, well, he was in the robotics group. He said, I had to rewrite some code for the, for the exam tomorrow. He said, it took me about eight hours. I said, how much code did you write? Oh, 500 lines of code. I can only imagine how that much was. But they won mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. of that. So that when you give these kids a challenge, I, I don't tell them how to do it. I say, this is what I foresee. Let's, it has to do this. It has to do this. It has to do this. It has to do And give them a half a dozen or a dozen things it has to do and let them loose. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that area up in the top floor, the fourth floor, half of the th- that floor is sitting room almost. It's like you're in your living room. And kids are gathering, sort of like Stanford or those schools where you gather around some tables and talk. Mm-hmm. And that's it, exciting. Is this the the Sullivan Center? The Sullivan Center. So is that is that building completed already? No, it's not. It'll be uh, running a little bit behind time, but it mm-hmm. should be finished in early September. Mm-hmm. It will be occupied then. And we have a number of interesting courses, not only in robotics, but in language, in uh, production, 
uh, in videography, all kinds of things are coming out in there. But it's a place where a youngster can follow their dream. I have a question. I want to want give me some help, mm-hmm. but let me get into it. Let me do it. We're talking to Ken Kaneshiro from the Center for Conservation Research and Training, uh, and uh, Jack Kay from Iolani School about ruggedized sensors monitoring the Alawai and about other ways that real-world science can enhance education. If you've got a question, we're here, and we've got the experts to answer them at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Ken, uh, in a bit, I'll want to talk a little bit more about some of those uh, uh, commercial and and defense applications of the work that you're doing, but perhaps you can add to what uh, Jack has said in terms of what do you see as the student contribution to this area, this field, and the work that you're doing? Yeah, you know, the, my um, interest in science education at the K-12 level really started maybe in the year 2000, and that's mainly because the National Science Foundation initiated this new program called GK-12, and the G stands for graduate students, and how we can actually employ graduate students, pay a stipend, a very nice stipend actually, uh, for graduate students to outreach and mentor K-12 teachers and students. You know, I never thought I would get involved with K-12 science education, but that has been probably the most successful project I've been involved with. Hmm. We received about 10 years of funding, about half a million dollars a year. Uh, we were able to um, employ about 150 students over that 10-year period. About uh, 250 teachers were involved. More than 7,000 students were involved. And, you know, working with Jack and the Yolani School Group uh, and this, this student that he mentioned earlier, Iris Kuo, um, <clears throat> she, you know, it's, it's really the, the sort of the excitement of discovery. Mm-hmm. And, and Jack mentioned her discovering this new species of bacteria. Um, actually, she discovered four new species of bacteria from a plant that are the flies that I study uh, for many years, for 50 years now. <laughs> Mm. Um, are associated. There's about 560 species of bacteria that we've already discovered associated with these flies, and we told Iris, you know, there's there's a lot of plants that these flies are breeding in. Can you go out and, you know, isolate the the microorganisms that's living on these plants and the, the flies are feeding on? She went out in six weeks' time, collected the plant, isolated the microorganisms, and discovered these new species of bacteria. One of them, which she has published and described now in a peer-reviewed scientific journal. Now, did she enter that into, like, a science fair or anything like that? No, I don't think so, no, Jack. No, no. no. Oh. And with your, with your uh, I wouldn't say long history, but, you know, your experience in, in science and such and perhaps your own developing personal interest in science, um, what do you think about this, this generation of students that we're seeing? I mean, uh, certainly it seems that they're doing some impressive stuff that uh, certainly as, as a youth, I would, yeah, I couldn't even imagine. Yeah. Well, again, as Jack knows, because he's you know trained a lot of Iolani students, and Bert knows because he was a he was a student at Iolani. I was a student <laughs> at Iolani myself. Um, wow, this is the Iolani show. We're going to change the name of the show to the yeah. Iolani Cafe. But you know, I, I'm at, you know having worked with the students from the AP Biology class, especially students like uh, like uh, Iris Kuo, and now a more recent student um, Ben. Um, I, I'm absolutely impressed with their capabilities and the kinds of things that Jack described earlier. Uh, I mean. 
It's incredible that high school students are really being able to do these kinds of experiments. You know, I want to talk a little bit more about some of these kinds of, um, let's say, projects because evidently this is all kind of after school and extracurricular. So I want to hold that thought. We'll be right back at this short break to continue our conversation with Ken Kaneshiro and Jack Kay about monitoring for environmental health and security. What kind of information do we get from these sensors? What are some of the things that you can do with them? And what are the next steps and next generation? in this science. We'd love to hear from you as well. We've got a call after the break and you can join the queue at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Some companies test for illegal drugs. We know that. Some now are testing for what's legal. Before they are hired, they have a drug test that detects nicotine use. I'm Kai Rizdal, the Freakonomics of smoker discrimination and the rest of the day's business news next time on Marketplace. It's from 8 p.m. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. I didn't know what I wanted to play, and whatever instrument would be in front of me, I'd try to play. But I, I guess I knew pretty young that I needed to do some kind of music. Esperanza Spalding. Her name means hope, and her talent is amazing. The singing bass player with a beautiful sound and a wonderful rhythmic feeling. That's Esperanza Spalding on the next Piano Jazz. Saturday at 3 p.m., following the Moth Radio Hour. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we're talking to Ken Kaneshiro and Jack Kay about the SIMES project. And how extensive do you see this network of sensors becoming? And, of course, you can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands or even from the mainland. And, of course, uh, Right before the break, we're talking about uh, you know the these sensors and how they are actually becoming um, uh, not only you know implemented for for in this in the case of schools, but then this this probably has a, a broader impact for Hawaii at large. But before we touch on that, I wanted to actually get one of our callers to call uh, to actually uh, come uh, ask their question to. Um, we wanted to welcome uh, Dave from Waikiki because he's been kind of patiently waiting on the line to to ask his question. We want to welcome you to Bite Marks Cafe. Hey, uh, aloha. I was uh, calling uh, because of the ruggedized sensors on the Alawai, and you guys were commenting on um, how polluted the Alawai is. And I was wondering if uh, that in- the information that you collect is shared with any of the uh, paddle or canoe clubs that I see in Alawai just about 24-7. Ah, that's a great question. So, of course, you know, Ryan and I, we're kind of like open data wonks, and uh, we like to see if, you know, this kind of scientific data is is being made available uh, for others to perhaps access and interpret and and perhaps make uh, some analysis from. But where does this data actually reside? Well, it's actually in a... In, in a, a portal, uh-huh. uh, actually, which is monitored by IntelliSense itself. Uh, but th- just to quickly say to uh, this particular question, we are, we are connected, not connected, but we do know some folks that, who do the surfing. Uh, they're using a machine that they've also asked us if we would want to borrow. So we are spreading a little bit as this thing gets going. Now, it's only one group that we really have become associated with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I'm sorry I don't have the name of the group. Uh, but but we are trying to help. Uh, 
the bacteria, and when we talk about pollution, pollution is a grandiose term. So uh, there's so many facets to it, and bacteria is one, but there's so many other avenues that you have to be aware of. And also, if you don't mind, uh, I'll just mention about the outreach program that we do. Uh, We have already done outreach to Hokalani School a couple of times, going to their school with their fifth graders. Our kids go up and teach them how to sample, what to sample, what to watch out for, what's a no-no, what's a good thing. And also the Alawai School. Mm -hmm. So those two schools in the fifth grade we've helped out. If um, if Dave wanted to perhaps... Uh, touch base with anybody who has collected this data, would they be able to contact you? Yeah, I'd be pleased. Uh, let me, I, I can give my email online. I sure, absolutely. Uh, jkay at eolani.org. jkay at eolani.org. And I'll answer your right away. Good, well, Jack, great. I mean, it's good that, that what you say because uh, Ken mentioned how this was all born from a program to help uh, graduate students do outreach to high school students. Uh, and now you, you're saying that these students aren't doing their outreach to elementary school students, right. so it's certainly passing it on. But as to the caller's question, I would agree that, you know, we've we featured a lot of, say, ocean monitoring where they have a network of sensors, but they publish it on a web website where anybody can tap into it, um, build apps off of it, just look it up before they go surfing. So, uh, Ken, would you see it as a possibility that uh, as this is more persistent and you understand what your readings are showing, that somebody could even go to the website and go, oh, I'm not going to go paddling in the Alawai today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the projects that I, I briefly mentioned earlier is uh, the Exemplary State uh, vision, uh, and this is a vision of Major General Daryl Wong, who is the Adjutant General of the Hawaii National Guard. And it's incredible that, you know, so here's a military general, commander of the civ- uh, Civil Defense and Hawaii Army National Guard, who's thinking in this way in trying to engage the general public as well as, and especially the K-12 community in collecting these kinds of data to to um, help him do his job as a civil defense commander uh, a better job. So, mm-hmm. you know, things like f- flood mitigation, disaster management, public health issues. If we get all of the schools statewide collecting these kinds of data, so the, the things that Jack talked about, how Iolani is now working with other schools in the public school mm-hmm, system, mm-hmm. imagine if we did this statewide, mm-hmm. right, and collecting these kinds of environmental biological data and made it available not just to the regulatory agencies like National Guard, Department of Health, DLNR, but to the general public that they, they can actually um, use it as a decision-making tool. You know, Decide for yourself depend, because of bacterial counts of this eye or whatever, whether you want to go surfing in this particular beach or get into the Hawaii Canal because you know certain parameters are – are higher than than it should be. So, so when you talk about the exemplary state, I mean, is there something that uh, is is unique about that term? I mean, what does it actually refer to? Uh, again, you know, trying to develop Hawaii as a model, mm-hmm. as a, as a uh, exemplary state. You know, if you mm-hmm. know the term exemplary, try to uh, engage the community and make them a lot more aware of the the environmental issues and. The, the the kinds of project that Iolani is doing with the Alawai Canal, collecting abiotic and biotic information, and then correlating with uh, the weather and the climate over a period of ten years, let's say, and, and you know Iolani has made the commitment to continue this project over a long term. Mm-hmm. We're going to see start to see patterns of change, and if we can correlate that with climate change, 
at the global or local scale, mm-hmm. then we're going to have some very interesting kinds of data where we can start to make predictions. Right. So, so Jack, um, now that Ilani has sort of set the stage for uh, having these sensors out there and, and monitoring it for several years and coming up with programs that, that kids could actually have this sense of discovery, uh, well, how will you – I know you're already um, doing some outreach and mentoring of Hokulani. Do you see also taking this to other high schools and perhaps mentoring other other uh, teachers and students? No, very, very much so. Actually, Ken and I were talking a little bit earlier about some of the new ideas he has for a, a more uh, island-wide situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but, see, we're so fortunate. We're sitting with a backyard laboratory. I mean, Iolani sits on a laboratory. And so we have a tremendous opportunity to do a lot. Uh, the trouble with with any of this kind of thing is it takes time to get enough data, things, so things start to become clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but we're getting there now. It's, it's been almost four years, and and by the time, as, as Ken says, six, seven, eight years down the road, we we hopefully will have some answers. I know we're turning out youngsters now because of this program, who are much more involved in the process of science rather than just talking science. Uh, a lot of kids will talk science. I did this, I did that. Uh, but they don't ask the question, how could I go from here to the next point? And that's what we're hoping to do, uh, build that build that up in, in our own natural laboratory. Mm-hmm. Now, Ken, as we started our conversation, we did mention that there is uh, there is a security aspect to this. There is, there is an interest for maritime security and such uh, for Hawaii, and if it's an exemplar, certainly something that can be uh, replicated elsewhere. Can you ex- tell us a little bit more about that aspect of this work, the security aspect of it? Yeah, again, the you know it's not so much the environmental aspect uh, of the science program. It's developing the the technologies, you know, the radar technology, the acoustic technology, where they can actually put acoustical sensors in you know in in the ocean and be able to hear differences of a particular ship, you know, and and uh, and try to understand whether that's a terrorist uh, in, involved. So that's why Homeland Security is very much interested in this kinds of. Uh, projects where new kinds of technologies, sensors, and so on, that will enable them to detect these kinds of potential terrorist activity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that that's you know that's really the 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 same security component. Mm-hmm. Now uh, you know I I know you talked about this earlier about having a sensor out in a valley on uh, let's say Kauai, you know Waialeale. Um, how does how does that sensor actually communicate back to you know, a receiving station, given that, you know, it's only being powered by a battery and the transmitter is probably not a, you know, like a big honking transmitter. Right. What, what is it about this, this sensor that, you know, has the, the technology that's capable of, of, you know, transmitting enough data so that, you know, receive stations can pick it up? Yeah. You know, I, again, I, I got to admit that I'm not the technology person, right? I'm, I'm a biologist, actually. But it's it's the you know the NASA the uh, the Stanford engineers who's actually transmitting data from space. So you're talking about hundreds of thousands of miles away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so when we talk, ask them to help us um, um, collect data from these very remote, very deep valleys, said easy. It's it's, <laughs> it's not very far away. But they didn't realize how difficult it is because mm-hmm. if they're transmitting data f- from satellites, for example, because the valley is so deep and fo- so narrow. The satellite is crossing over that particular site for mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. a few minutes, but we need to have continuous real-time data. So 
they they have this sort of wireless um, transmitter, um, and this is where some of their uh, – I shouldn't say proprietary because it, it's pretty open. They're, mm-hmm. they're not – they're willing to share it, and they're, they're not trying to make become millionaires by selling this technology. But what they do is they send tra- – they transmit the, the data from the bottom of the valley where there's water quality or weather data up to the top of the ridge. Mm-hmm. And from that point, line of sight to a computer base station, you know, where near the coast, for example. Mm-hmm. And so they can, you know, actually route data from the bottom to the top. And if it's not really in line of sight, they'll they'll bounce it off another um, transmitter and then back to the mm-hmm. um, base station. So, base so station. the the um, the sensors over at the Iolani Alawai Alawai project is that being received by a station back at Iolani somewhere? Well, some of it is uh, the weather station, which is right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the other materials we actually are doing by hand at certain times. We don't have any sensors sitting out in the alloy per se right now. Uh, that's a plan, and oh, that's, what, that's one of the vehicle plan. Uh, it's simply because at that particular area, I have to say, it, things simply disappear right, no matter what right. we put there out there. Uh, we were doing some work on crabs, as an example, uh, just to show you how much changed. I've been here a while, and I remember five species of crabs in that area. We can only find two now, mm-hmm. uh, the Samoan crab and the blue pincher crab. All of the other 7-Eleven, et cetera, et cetera, are all gone. And that's, of course, during my lifetime. I'm just thinking about the kids. If I could see that here, what are they going to see as they look at this data five years from now? I remember uh, back in 1901 when I was there, uh, <laughs> uh, there were jellyfish in the Alawai. There still are. Oh, they are? But they're seasonal. They're seasonal. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, um, so we're not at the point where you have these persistent sensors, and you talked about uh, sort of this, uh, these mobile ones right. or these vehicles that move yeah. around. Um, but, you know, the technical side of me is very excited. But you had mentioned you're a fish person, and Ken, you mentioned you're a biologist. Um, and what I'm kind of curious about when we talk about a lot of science that's happening, even with a defense ad- application, mm-hmm. Can you imagine, perhaps, or give me an idea, wrap my hand around what might be a commercial application of some of the things you're discovering and learning through developing these sensors or studying this information? I mean, uh, 10 years down the line, uh, uh, what do you see that this might help just an average resident in Hawaii? That's an interesting question. <laughs> I, I would like to give it some thought first. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, long-term plans are difficult to predict. Uh, if we can save uh, this particular area, as an example, um, the, the, we're talking not just the Alloway, we're talking about the Manoa watershed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about 16 square miles of land. We're talking about over 400,000 people in that area. And if our information can finally get out to them, uh, maybe they'll be more sensitized to our environment. Uh, sensitized to what they do with the environment. It's too often I see people just going to the to our area, uh, catching fishes and just for the fun of it, and then doing stupid things with the fish. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, life is precious for us, and, and our kids feel that. Uh, and so I, that's one way I could look at this. I think uh, uh, it's a long term uh, benefit to all society, all humanity in this particular area. As I say, it's 16 square miles. That's a lot of, a lot of ground. And, um, and Ken, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the next step for this program, uh, how do you see it, let's say, becoming a reality for, uh, let's say, General Wong's vision? Yeah, you know, a lot of it has to do with funding, right? We, uh-huh. we have to be uh-huh. able to get the funding mm-hmm. to, um, to develop the program, uh, engage the graduate students. As I said, the NSF 
uh, project back in the uh, early 200s provided $30,000 for 15 hours of commitment for, for each graduate student. So it's, it's going to cost some. And, and what we're, as a rough estimate, we're looking at potentially $6 million a year to really carry out this program at the statewide level. Mm-hmm. So if we take 10% of that, for example, $600,000, we'll be able to put um, uh, uh, 20 graduate students into the mix and begin to mentor the K-12 schools. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, a lot of it is going to take a lot of strategic planning. Of course, you know, we're not going to be able to rely on NSF um, or the state government to provide these kinds of funding, but I think we can actually attract private foundations Maybe not just one, but a consortium of them to provide these kinds of funding so that we can actually demonstrate and use Hawaii as a model for the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the idea. And you know, this, we, we've, we have this initiative now um, to try to bring the 2016 World Conservation Congress to Hawaii. This is held every four years. The last one was in Korea. And there was a large delegation of us that went to Korea to to. Um, show the uh, the Congress uh, administrators that Hawaii is committed to hosting this 2016 Congress, and so we're we're all looking forward to the 2016 um, Congress period, and and this attracts 10 or 12,000 world conservation community members mm-hmm. from all over the world coming to wherever the Congress is being held that year, and, and so we'll be able to showcase some of these. Projects like the Iolani Project, like the General Wong's Exemplary State Project, and what can be done as a model to address conservation, sustainability, resilience issues at the global scale. And, uh, you know, where can we find out more information and keep track of how this sort of project uh, evolves and develops? Yeah, I, again, we're at the very early stages of the Exemplary State um, Program, mm-hmm. so we don't even have a website at this point. Okay, uh, we've had maybe three meetings among the principals, and uh, as we get move forward with a strategic plan, uh, we're hoping that we'll have something in place by maybe early fall. All right, but there uh, is a there is a standing site uh, as well at Symes C I M E S dot Hawaii dot edu. Yeah. Well, and uh, so Ken Kanashiro is from the Center for Conservation Research and Training, and of course, Mr. K is the biology teacher over at Iolani School, and we want to thank you both for joining us today. Uh, well, mahalo for having us. Mahalo nui loha. Thanks for, from an old guy to, <laughs> to a young guy. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll learn about students and their lessons in digital citizenship. And, of course, if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. Of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chung, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovit. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's local band Tiki Taboo and a song called Last Ride. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.